Welcome to episode 542 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with painter extraordinaire from her home in Gooseboro, Danielle Lettinen. We talk with Danielle about her early years in Poland, her parents being famous writers, the secret police, a bug on their phone, March of 1968, independent newspapers in Warsaw, her nanny in Poland, being raised by poets, censorship, Henry Kissinger and Allen Ginsberg sleeping over, three coarse meals, unloved poets, Jackson Pollock's methodology, moving to Iowa, the Upper West Side, Brooklyn, back to Warsaw, sitting with Lech Walesa, and letters under the lamp from her mom, among other things. We have an E.W. poem titled, After a Nap. And of course, all of this will be infused, imbued, with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 542 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours. I often wonder why you came to me Brought such a flame to me Then let it die And if another love should find my heart It will remind my heart Of your goodbye With every new love You'll come back to me In other eyes It's you I'll see If I love again Though it's someone new If I love again It would still be you In someone else's warm embrace I will close my eyes and see your face If I love again, I'll find other charms And I'll make believe that you are in my arms And though my lips may whisper I love you My heart will not be true For I'll keep loving you Every time I love again
If I love again Though it's someone new If I love again It would still be you And someone else's warm embrace Hello? Danielle Lettinen, is that you? Well, hello, E.W. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I am so excited to be with you today. Me too. I look forward to our conversation. And uh, before we get started, let me share a little background information with the listeners. Danielle Littonen is a Brooklyn-based artist whose work has been exhibited in group and solo shows in Brooklyn, Manhattan, Italia, Poland, and Scranton, Pennsylvania. She won the Jury Award in Mediterranean Contemporary Art at Castello di Lago Pesole, Italy. And her work is in collections in New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Maryland, and Warsaw, Poland. Born in Poland, she received her education in art, art history, and philosophy at Columbia University, NYU, CUNY, and the Parsons School of Design. Critic Anne Rudder comments, quote, Danielle Lettinen is a young painter who combines acrylics and mixed media on canvas. Her drip paintings filled with gestures of spirited splashes and rivulets of color, intimate galactic movements, reinterprets the abstract expressionist canon while forging her own direction. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program Danielle Lettinen. Again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. And um, I wanted to ask, where are we talking with you from? Where are you today? Well, so um, I'm talking to you from my Goldsboro Mountain home. I'm on the edge of the game lands, and it's a beautiful fall day. The leaves are falling, and... uh, it's a little chilly, so I just turned on the heater. Yeah, I hear you. I'm not too far from you today, and it is a little, a little chilly. Uh, <laughs> and we we have several ideas and topics we're going to delve into. Let's get started with your background. I mentioned in the opening bio that you uh, grew up in Poland. Tell us a bit about that and about moving to America, if you would. Wow. Well, you know what? As I used to say in Brooklyn, how many hours do we have? Um, (laughs) It's a big topic. You know, I will not lie. I have to say I spent quite a bit of time this morning um, trying to figure out exactly how to edit some of this down. But, you know, let's start really simple. Um, I was born and raised in Warsaw, Poland, smack dab in the middle of it. Um, The center of Warsaw called Śródmieście, for those who speak Polish. And um, I lived at a couple of different addresses there as a a newborn. I lived on Mazowiecka Street, which is now a wonderful street filled with um, art uh, stores and also bars. And it's right next to a great museum that I loved to visit as a kid, um, which is um, a gallery, uh, sort of in a a round. And... um, uh, it's a cool place for modern art, and I used to go there quite a bit as a kid. And, you know, Warsaw, Poland, in 
the post-war years, um, and I don't mean to be dating myself, because I really, as a kid, didn't realize that the war was only over, you know, over a decade before I was born. So, um, you know, Warsaw was a safe place for us to, to roam around. I used to take in double features, take a tram over to the nearest uh, um, movie theater that showed um, usually pretty much American movies. I grew up with that. And um, I would go to galleries by myself and look at artwork. And um, um, I was a pretty independent kid. I was an only child. Um, my parents were writers, um, poets and translators and uh, worked at home and, you know, late night um, writers. And also we had an open house. So there were often parties and people stayed really late into the night and, you know, clouds of smoke. Those those days were the smoking days, you know, especially in Poland. And um, so <laughs> my parents slept in late. So I was kind of on my own on weekends. So weekends were kind of a blessing and a curse for me. I kind of a lot of kids went to Catholic church lessons, and I didn't. Um, and I once asked my mom, why wasn't I going to these, um, you know, Sunday lessons? And she looked at me very thoughtfully. She's a very smart woman. And she said, um, well, would you like to go? And I said, uh, well, let me find out. So I researched it, and I asked my friends how they felt about these lessons, and most of them really didn't think they were very useful. So I said, no, it's okay. So I stayed with my double features on Sunday. Much better. And, um, yeah, I did, I did. And, you know, the usual smorgasbord of, you know, what a child was brought up back then, you know, those were, you know, it's called communist days, but really... Communism in Poland had sort of a different face. It was more of a socialist system, mm -hmm. and um, it, um, you know, it provided, you know, pretty much. Um, we were told a hundred percent employment, and you know, my uh, joke since then was that fifty percent of the Poles were working, and the other fifty were eavesdropping on them because they were <laughs> hired uh, by the secret police. And in fact, one time, oh well. You know, kids love the telephone. Well, we all love the telephone. I'm on the phone right now. And um, so uh, having a telephone in Poland was rare. Um, and there were, of course, landlines. There was, this is way before cell phones. And um, so as soon as my parents would leave the house, I was an only child, I would stay there and immediately go on the phone and stay for hours talking with my girlfriends about, you know, boys and the teacher and whatever. Well, I knew our phone was bugged because my parents were prominent writers, so I knew it was bugged, but I really didn't know how it worked until one day I was on the phone with Eva, my best friend. We're talking some nonsense, you know, teenage girls, and a voice appears on the line that wasn't Eva's or mine, a, a man. It sounded like a young man, and I knew damn well what he was doing there. I knew he was eavesdropping because this was personally done. This was not recording, you know, tape recorders. This was actual human beings listening in. And I said, oh, I said, hi. I said, what are you doing there? And he said, oh, I'm working here. And, um, you know, the diplomat that I was as a kid, I said, oh, that must be such an interesting job. And he goes, well, that depends. And I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, that must have bored him to death. And he just, you know, he knew there was not going to be any state secrets, you know, discussed on our conversation. So that's how I know firsthand about eavesdropping in Poland. It was actually kind of funny. Uh, how, old were, how old were you, would you say, when that occurred? Oh, well, you know, bad things started happening <laughs> to my parents around... 1968, which was kind of the, um, you know, I compared to the Spring of Nations, it seems like the whole world kind of exploded with, uh, you know, student demonstrations and uprisings and whatnot. And Poland was no different. So in Poland, it was in March of 68. And um, my parents' best friends were like them, dissidents. Um, so they were friends with Adam Michnik, who later, you know, became a leader of the already legitimate government much mm -hmm. later mm -hmm. and is now main editor of the probably only independent newspaper in in Warsaw at this time wow. and um, so now he um, you know he still does it but he was a young man then and back in the days it was very difficult for Poles to get any kind of copying equipment because the government well, this is a long story but basically my parents did very well as as writers. Um, as long as they, the government was very good to its writers because Poles generally respect writing and respect artists and listen to what, or read carefully what is written or used to at least. And so now, as long as my parents behaved themselves and didn't, you know, do anything very clearly uh, uh, that could be read as, you know, dissident-like or anti-government. Everything was great. You know, we had, I grew up with a nanny. Um, people find it very strange to think that, you know, in communist countries, you know, but nannies really were not very expensive. And in fact, when the government confiscated a whole bunch of farmland, which, or most of it, um, people who used to work these farms and their families had no place to go, really. Uh -huh. So they came to the cities, kind of a little bit like um, southern... Um, you know, liberation of, of slaves. And all of a sudden, you know, a lot of uh, black folks moved up north because mm -hmm. it was a little bit more likely for them to get a job in, in urban areas. So this was the same in Poland. So a lot of folks from the borders of Ukraine um, came to big cities like Warsaw looking for employment. And so my nanny, actually her name was Aniela, where my original name was Daniela in Polish, so we had a similar name. And she was part of the family. You know, she lived with us. She actually raised me, thank God, because, you know, being raised by poets could be very tricky. Um, <laughs> so this was a voice of reason in our house, and she also, you know, she did an amazing amount of work, actually. She shopped at the local market. Um, chickens didn't come in plastic containers. You know, they were real chickens, and she she actually sat there and plucked them in the kitchen, in our urban kitchen. She plucked the chicken, <laughs> and she cooked. And um, at night, she reviewed my lessons with me. You know, we, we had Russian. It was obligatory to take it. I'm glad I did, because I know Cyrillic until now. I can read it. It helps me with Greek. But anyway, she would review my lessons with me, and she would tell me about stories of Eastern Poland and read me books, and... It was a wonderful relationship. Um, she also, <laughs> this is kind of not really anything I wrote down today, but as I speak about her, um, 
she and I, for the first time in my life, ever saw a black man in the streets of Warsaw. I only saw white people before, you mm-hmm. know. And um, this was uh, on the other, I still remember exactly the moment. He was walking rather fast on the opposite side of the street, beautifully dressed to the nines with an attache case, um, tall, handsome, beautiful skin, and, you know, looking back, probably a diplomat who was there, you know, assigned at an embassy or consulate. And um, my nanny pointed him out. And in Polish, and I was a little kid, she said to me, uh, look, she says, a black man, he, she goes, He's human, just like the rest of us. And you know what? That was all the lesson I ever needed in mm. equality. It mm. was very simple what she said. She was, you know, she was a, a simple woman, you know. I mean, she could read and write. And she had her heart in the right place. So I, I kind of really appreciate that. But going back to your question, you were asking me when was this eavesdropping taking place. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I'm figuring probably somewhere around 1968, because that was the time when, going back to my parents' house, um, that's when dissidents were really visiting, you know, with my parents. They were friends. Um, Meetings were held, you know, in the house. Um, There were friends also with, um, there was a gentleman by the name of Turovic from Krakow. He had the uh, Catholic newspaper, which... um, you can imagine was a very tough uh, place to be in mm. those days. Yeah. So he had a lot of problems with censorship and what not, but he tried to promote writers who are otherwise um, kind of removed from the press by the government. So he would publish that. So he always published my parents whenever there was trouble and, you know, censors would kind of not favor their writing in different magazines and whatnot. Uh, he would publish them. But then again, censorship gave him trouble over that as well. So he would visit. He was a good friend. And so, you know, a lot of interesting people came by. You know, the head of the literary, um, the writers' union, you know, would come over for dinner. Then, you know, my parents were involved with that. So there was a lot of traffic. It was an open house. And it was a wonderful house to grow up in. Um, A lot of writers came over. um, And my parents, you know, I only realized later, but there was no distinction, gay or straight, you know, uh, left or right. Um, I mean, Henry Kissinger came. My my dad was um, at a symposium in Harvard, and Henry Kissinger wasn't, you know, in the position he was to become later. He stayed on my father's cot one night. Another year, Allen Ginsberg came, you wow. know, completely the opposite direction. Right. And... Uh, you know, my father used to tell the story about Alan, and, you know, he was a beatnik back in those days. And um, my father said, Alan, uh, you know, we're going to this restaurant. You're going to have to put on a tie and a jacket. And Alan, of course, gave him the look. And he goes, you know, if you don't do that, they're going to give you some ugly jacket from their wardrobe department <laughs> over there. <laughs> so, so my father... <laughs> credits himself with putting a tie and a jacket on Allen Ginsberg, who normally would never do that, but he did it for my dad. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Funny. It is. And yeah. now, so your, your parents are primarily poets, or did, did they write fiction? Did, did they write nonfiction as well? Uh, were they journalists? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a good question. I always 
thought of them as poets. Growing up, I thought they were poets. And I think primarily that is what they wanted to be known as. My mother, before she died, wanted me to put on her grave, Julia Hartwig, poet. And yeah. I did. You know. Tell so me, I, she, tell, tell everybody yeah. their names again, clearly, your mother and father's names. Okay. So, um, so they've both been translated, so you can actually find their work. Um, I just realized that my father's article on Wikipedia is only in Polish, so I'm going to take it upon myself to translate it and put it in there. I just, I just you know, thank you for this interview, because it really got me working on <laughs> stuff I, I should have been working on for a long time. Um, so anyway, so my mom, um, so it's an easy name, because they originally came from Germany, their family. Um, so Julia, um, J-U-L-I-A, and the last name is Hartwig, so it's H-A-R-T-W-I-G. And she has some wonderful translators whom I met, sad occasion, because it was a memorial after she passed. But um, they came to see, you know, me and um, um, from Ann Arbor in Michigan. And so there are a couple of, um, maybe three or four books, actually, in English by her, um, and it's poetry. And my father, um, I was just looking, I have a poem I would actually love to read, but I don't know if we have time. Um, he was, mm, he lived uh, a much shorter life than my mom did because, uh, unfortunately, he was a smoker. So he passed um, in um, 1996. Uh, um, so it's, He's been gone for a long time, and um, but he was translated um, in Iowa when we were at the International Writing Workshop mm-hmm. with with him. And now his name is very tricky because it's a real Polish name. It actually means between rivers or Mesopotamia, <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, in Polish it's Międzyrzecki, so it's M I E D Z Y R Z E C K A which now you understand why I kept my married name, <laughs> even though I'm divorced. <laughs> because right. Letnin is still easier than the 16 letters there. Mm-hmm. And his first name is Artur, or was. Um, so, no, my mother also was in Poland. A lot of times they use the hyphenated, the, the women keep the um, maiden name, and then they'll add on the married name. So for the longest time, she was Julia Harcik Międzyrzecka, so the vowel at the end changes depending on male or female gender of um, the person. And um, so you asked about if they were poets or prose writers. So I think primarily for them, they were poets. Um, but, you know, if you make a living as a writer, which seems, you know, when I think about it, it seems a really daunting task. Yes. Um, you know, and yes. I always knew I always knew how difficult I mean, I didn't always know because we lived very comfortably, but I I can surmise now looking back how difficult it was because to give you an example, I would come home and we would have a, a lovely, you know, midday meal. So maybe four or five o'clock. And my father would come back from his editorial offices in a tie and a suit and you know, we always told him, you can take up the tie now, you're home. But no, no, he wouldn't. You know, he was very formal. And my mother and, and I and, you know, our nanny slash housekeeper would serve us. The, you know, it was always a three-course meal, a soup, and then you had, like, some kind of a main meal and a small dessert. And so 
we sat there and they always asked me how school was and of course I would tell them like whatever joke you know whatever the class clown did and so I I felt uh, it incumbent upon me to be uh, kind of the entertainer at the table mm-hmm. because the world was a very serious place around us so I just felt like my job was to make sure everybody at least had a laugh at the dinner table you know and um so we would talk and then sometimes the phone would ring and you know to me that meal was sacred kids are usually very conservative i find i was a very conservative kid and um not in ideas but just in terms of habits and daily routines and you know when we're sitting at the table we're sitting at the table but my parents would run to pick up that phone and um and i understand why now and absolutely forgive them because it could have been an editor you know with an important um offer you know or maybe their manuscript was accepted and mind you this is before computers you know there was no email that they could get or text or you know or a cell phone where you know you could somehow learn about the world from a screen it had to be either a phone call or a visit in person that was it there was no other option yeah much more personal no, how, it was. All, all yeah. of this is wonderful. You know, it's so enriching, it sounds like. And in your work as a painter, I mean, that's primarily what you do. I'm sure you do yeah. many other things. How, how, did it, how did you become a painter? And how did this experience with such wonderful parents and all of their friends inform the kind of artist you are today? Right. So... Um you know, there are so many answers to this question. Um, I mean, there's the obvious biography that, like, runs through one's head, and, oh, well, you know, I had art lessons when I was little. and But, you know, a lot of people have art lessons when they're little, and nothing ever happens. And so I've always really painted or doodled, I should say. Um, although, you know what, before I tell you about that, I just want to tell you the answer to the previous question, because I feel horrible leaving it hanging. So aside from poetry, I just want to finish that. They did write a lot of prose. My father wrote a novel. And probably one of the biggest um, things they did for a living was translations. Mm -hmm. And Poland was very rich in um, foreign literature, you know, largely because of people like them. Um, So they translated from English. They did an anthology of of American poetry. That was one of the biggest things they ever did. And that didn't really bring much money, but it was just a good thing to do. They translated from French. My mother wrote a biography of Apollinaire, who turned out to have been of Polish descent. I didn't know this, um, you know, until after I started looking into her work. And translated a lot of um, French sort of uh, poe modi, or, you know, sort of maudlin poets. She was fascinated with, like, Baudelaire, uh, Rimbaud, and, you know, Mm. The, great, great the stuff. Unloved, the unloved poets, you know, who maybe committed suicide early and whatnot. I mean, there's a lot of family stories to go to that. So, you know, they did do a lot of um, other things that have to do with the writer's craft and the, the translations they did together, which was really kind of fun because I was in the middle room and there were two rooms adjoining. And sometimes, you know, there would be the typewriter going, manual typewriter, and they would yell out from one room to the other, how do you translate this, you know, from French, or how do you translate that? So I actually learned a lot of the writer's craft while just kind of being around the house, Mm -hmm. because they never really left to work. So to finish that, but 
actually, this has a connection with why I paint because, you know, um, one of the things I used to do is teach art. And um, that was really wonderful because I worked with kids and um, kids are just so wonderfully creative and, um, you know, not to mention smart. Um, so I learned so much from just their direct approach to materials. And it was a lot of fun to introduce them to maybe like a, a unit on Jackson Pollock. And then we all painted like Jackson Pollock. And yeah, I actually learned quite a bit myself from that, watching Pollock's videos. And he became sort of my big mentor in some ways. And Helen Frankenthaler was her, um, you know, she would kind of soak the canvas and, you know, let the paint, um, assume its natural shape on you know on her huge these beautiful paintings i just love them mm -hmm. um i love her work i mean to me she painted like an angel um but i love jackson pollock's methodology you know and he kind of did a lot of the south you know the southwestern you know shamans the the work they did with the you know kind of like a dance around um, uh, an area where they would basically paint with sand and whatnot. So that was kind of his origins. And they seem to me very religious in some kind of a way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just watching him sort of dance around the canvas. So that's kind of how I paint, actually. I learned that from him. And, um, and I love doing that. It's, it's, a, it's a great activity for me to, to pursue. And so you, started, you lay the canvas on the ground. So just like Jackson, I take a canvas. I actually use a, a pre-stretched canvas only because I really don't have the the wherewithal and the technology to put it together. You know, just like Helen would take a, a raw canvas and let it, you know, then they framed it. So I buy them pre-framed. But uh, yes, it's always on the ground, mostly. And um, yeah, I kind of dance around it, you know, and I use... Um, you know, he used, um, if you look at those videos, um, MoMA uh, in San Francisco has a, a, a really nice one of him um, using kind of, um, looks like a stick, you know, and and then he also splashes some of the paint mm -hmm. um, directly out of the can of paint. And some of it was house paint and some of it was, you know, painterly paint. But, um, well, you know the result. Um, yes. So... I like the methodology, um, and I like the sort of spiritual connection with the with the Native American um, shaman, you know, building um, a sand painting. And you know, sand paintings are actually quite um, uh, international. If you look into different cultures, they, they appear in Asia, and it seems it's it's kind of something people do. You know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But for me to do it for me, so it's one thing to paint with, you know kids in school and you know I was a teacher so you know we had a lot of fun and actually the paintings were sold at an auction and we made money for the school so that was really cool was that um, in Poland but, or was that here in the US okay so so moving from my parents uh, to the United States um, did, did we talk about really how that even happened or maybe we should or maybe we shouldn't we can just jump to today but um, in 1971, which seems like a really long time ago, um, my father was invited to Iowa, uh, which has that international writers program, uh, and which is right. where his work got translated. And um, so my mom and I joined him later. And the reason we joined him later was because 
the government wouldn't give us the passports. And back in the day, there were family passports, so I was on the same one with my mom. And um, so from Iowa, then, um, so then he started teaching. He was at Drake University in Des Moines, and then Stony Brook, Long Island, and that's where I ended up going to college. Nice. I was actually accepted at Brown, but uh, the money wasn't quite there to cover the other half of the fellowship. Mm. <laughs> so unfortunately, I didn't go there. Um, but I did go to Stony Brook, and then my parents went back to Poland because um, really, even though they enjoyed teaching, their audience was really in Poland as far as writing. They wrote in Polish, and um, they went back, and I stayed and finished my school and, uh, you know, my college, and then I went to Columbia, and um, I lived in on the Upper West Side for about 10 years, and then my apartment became a condo, and the area became very popular, and I sold my apartment and moved to Brooklyn, which seemed very quiet at the time. That was a long time ago. And I lived in Brooklyn for, like, the rest of the time while I was working. And then came Pennsylvania, which was originally a weekend home, but really it ended up being more of a, um, you know, first residence mm -hmm. in the end. So um, so going back to, to the painting, um, I always went back to Warsaw as, as much as I could. I didn't go during martial law. So my parents were already back there. They were, of course, in trouble again because now it was solidarity. My father was part of that movement. He sat with Wałęsa at the round table, you know, that set up basically, you know, the Poland that we have now. Wow. And um, he saw the first elections in 1989, I believe it was. And I went there, I went every summer and I went every Christmas. I didn't go during martial law because a friend of mine went. Um, she was also a daughter of a prominent writer and she couldn't get out. <laughs> so she she had a job and she was doing some work in LA um, um, doing animation she's an artist and uh, once she went there she couldn't get back to her job and I said you know what this is just too tricky for me let me just wait this one out so I kept going then I went with my ex-husband we went every time we had an opportunity later it became not so fun because my mother had a series of uh, surgeries and she fell and you know every time she was in the hospital I would fly over and you know get her back home and recovering and so it it was a difficult time towards the end but um, um, she came here eventually which is was always my hope that she would come and stay with us so she stayed with us, and I, I was hoping she would live to 100, but she passed um, almost 96 years old. Which, wow. You know, it's a pretty it's nice age. Yeah. It's, yeah, pretty nice age. And um, so I was sort of, as an only child, left with the job of settling the estate in Poland, in Warsaw. And so um, every year I went, my mom was kind of, somebody said, why didn't she just tell you? But she was a writer. So she would leave me a little letter under the lamp in, on her writing desk. And I always knew there was a letter for me there every time I went. And she would address different things. Maybe she had a hard time talking about when she's gone. I think she did. And so 
it was, you know, after I'm gone, this is what you would do with the furniture. She wanted me to sell it. She wanted me to have it appraised by this sort of um, auction house and whatnot. Actually, the furniture ended up in my best friend's house, which is, I think, much better. And then, um, you know, like what to do with the, um, uh, you know, the paintings, which that she and I both sold together. So that wasn't really a problem. But um, what really was a problem that she didn't address was that all of her work or my father's was not really organized in terms of, um, you know, Poland has sort of an equivalent of like our ASCAP. um, Mm -hmm. And um, it's, Every once in a while, they write me and they say, such and such wants to do a radio show, and um, we need your permission to read these poems. And um, and, and that's great. But then I also need to uh, fill out a written, like, they, it's still on paper. And so it's really hard to do when I'm abroad. So while I was in Poland, I said, you know what, let me just... Um, file all these pieces of paper with this organization so that whenever somebody needs to use something, it's already filed with them. I just give my permission and we're done. So this took a couple of years, one year for my mom and one year for my dad, and I had my best friend's help. So this was forever. And um, it was kind of a difficult time for me because I'm really used to living, you know, between New York and Pennsylvania, I'm very happy to be here. Mm-hmm. And being in Poland, um, I recaptured a lot of, like, really wonderful, um, you know, memories, number one. But also some friends from school found me, sort of, you know, during my mother's funeral. I did take her ashes back to Poland because I figured um, she was a Polish poet. My father was buried in a very distinguished, beautiful cemetery in Warsaw. And so I would do well to to reunite my parents in the same, you know, location. Um, So I did that. I mean, it was a lot of red tape. It took all summer to get this arranged, but I did it. It was a beautiful service. And and because it was advertised and also it was in the news, so some friends were able to, to find me. And it was wonderful, actually, because I hadn't seen them for a long time. And it almost kind of looked like I could maybe live there for a minute. Um... So at some point, uh, my father always said, well, this apartment, when we're gone, this is your apartment. And I would just look at him and, you know, my typical uh, contrariness, I would say, yeah, right, Dad, I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) I really just wanted them to live there forever. But as time passed, it did become my apartment. And so um, it used to be a beautiful apartment with a view of, like, all around Warsaw. You could see the sunset. You could see the Grand Hotel. It was gorgeous. When it was built in 1965, we were the first tenants, and nobody else lived there since. So it was really cool. And then unfortunately, or fortunately, um, Warsaw did get built up. Like, we used to play in the ruins of old um, buildings. Mm -hmm. We didn't think much of it, because kids just don't know any better. You know, you have what you have, and that's what you do. And... um, so little by little, those beautiful buildings got rebuilt, a bank was built, and trees were cut, which was really a heartache for my mom and for me, because those trees were so beautiful outside their windows, you know, and my father used to feed the birds outside the windows, and it was just really cool. Well, all that went, you know, uh, away, and a bank building was built. So in 
make this long story short, there really were no longer any views from the house. And in fact, I could practically see um, people in the bank signing their documents on the table. So in the morning, I would draw the curtains because I'm walking around in my bathrobe, you know, and (laughs) there really was no more privacy or views. So that apartment, and plus it needed repairs. So I think I did very well. I I was directed to a beautifully international um, tenant in the same apartment complex building who had redone her own place in kind of a Zen style. And she herself um, was born in China, lived in Russia, uh, worked for Ralph Lauren on Fifth Avenue, spoke fluent American English, and ended up kind of flipping houses in Warsaw. And I was like, this is perfect. You know, like, this was a very international home, open to the world. It's almost like my father was like a precursor of, you know, that um, the European Union. You right. know, he always, he always had that in him. In fact, that's what got him in trouble. There was a, a party chief, Gomulka, in the 60s, who actually, from a, a podium, a televised speech, called my father a European and that was supposed to be like a, um, so, that was supposed to be derogatory. My right. father actually was so upset he fainted. I never saw him faint before or since and um, you know it was very upsetting to be kind of basically he was like naming all of our friends as sort of enemies of the people. It was not a good thing. No. That was 68. Um, so but anyway so all that you know, made my father sort of um, a wonderful figure, my mother uh, alongside with him. Once he passed, she became much more prominent as a poet because he was no longer around. So she became more known. And, um, you know, when, uh, when they both passed, I was left with this apartment, which really I followed all her directions what to do. And then um, once it was sold, I was given a couple of months to kind of make sure, you know, that, uh, you know, whatever I still needed to give to the Museum of Literature or whatever I could do. So at some point I was done, you know, and um, I still had a bed, you know, and this empty apartment. And, you know, it's that feeling of when you've done some incredibly huge job and it's like that relief, Mm -hmm. you know, you're done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt like I did very well. I was really proud of myself. I had a lot of amazing help. you know, neighbors, I gave a little goodbye party, like for closure, you know, to the neighbors and the friends that I still had. And, um, you know, one day I was just sitting in my old room, which actually became my mom's room. And then, you know, and I was looking around and um, I realized that I just was, I became one of those characters my mother wrote about. I was absolutely miserable. I didn't have my parents anymore. I just sold my apartment. I was separated from my husband and on my way to a divorce. I was away from my places in New York and Pennsylvania. I was away from my cats. And I just was kind of realizing it, you know, all of a sudden I was so busy. And then all of a sudden it was like, this is, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. And then I said, well, but then I was giving this little party for our neighbors and, and I was going to give this little speech and in the speech I said, you know, this was such a vibrant, wonderful, open, warm house. And then I thought, well, how can I, how can I honor these wonderful people who are no longer here but who had this great life that I was part of actually? 
And I thought, how can I pay tribute to these folks? And I thought about it, and I was just so miserable, but I did ask myself this question, and I said, well, there's only one thing to do. I have to create. That's the only way I can really honor them. Hmm. Um, because I am them now. You know, this is all that's left is me. So I always wrote, you know, I still write. Um, and I probably will always write because it's just in my blood. And But at that point, I wanted to paint. I said, well, you know what? I will just, I'll start painting. And so the next day I went and I bought the biggest canvas I could find. And, um, you know, some acrylic paints. And I start, I still remember painting like one color every day. I did a layer. And I called them splashes. It was my first series. And um, I don't know what happened, but. I think that energy, you know, that that feeling somehow got translated into the work, and it just it just um, it it caught on, you know. I had a I had exhibit after exhibit in Warsaw. They sold really well. Um, I didn't charge much because, you know, I wasn't really doing this for the income. I was, you know, uh, I guess paying tribute to my parents, and um, so that was five years ago, and. Um, I, I'm kind of still going, <laughs> you know, wow. still painting, um, still painting on both sides of the ocean. And, um, you know, what just happened last summer, was it June, June, um, was kind of a um, sort of a bit of a sense of closure on that on that particular series. I uh, I had rented an apartment in Warsaw after selling the one. Um, um, and um, I was painting there, and um, and then COVID came, and I had an apartment also on Montague Street in Brooklyn, which was lovely, and um, I really couldn't get to these places. I sort of um, remained in Pennsylvania, which was like, you know, the house I have is like a perfect place to survive a pandemic because, you know, you have neighbors, you know, you have the ability to move around, but you know, it was a good place to self-isolate. So unfortunately, both apartments fell victim to the pandemic. You know, I had to give them up. My my friends again came in helpful and, you know, either took the work or, you know, kept it or stored it. So one particular friend, Maciek Tchaikovsky, I hope he will listen to this um, podcast, um, actually took a whole bunch of artwork from... Um, where it was displayed, um, there was a florist who had sort of a beautiful boutique um, set up, and I had done a lot of paintings for him, or, you know, he ended up hanging a lot of the work I had upstairs, which made sense. Um, well, COVID also um, killed his business. So um, when he closed up his shop, my friend Maciek took all the work, you know, only two blocks away to the basement of his apartment. and. Um, now he sold his apartment <laughs> last mm. spring. So all of a sudden, you know, he has all this work, and what are we to do? So I took a plane to Poland, my first big trip since before COVID. Um, and um, uh, we went, I went, and we. I was a little bit nervous to see what he has in the basement of my work. Was it going to be all of it? Was something going to be missing? But he had exactly what I thought should be there. Everything was there. It was great. 
Beautiful. So, yeah, so he's a very creative person. He's an amazingly um, artistic, he's actually a, a film director and a, a you know, just very talented um, man. And he said, why don't we have a, a sale in the courtyard? And um, so there's a courtyard, and it's, you know, it's under lock and key. You can get in there. It's kind of like in the middle of bustling Warsaw, but it's very quiet. And it's big. And I said, you know, that's a great idea. So he called down somebody else from the board. It's it's become a an association. So, um, so we didn't have to ask for permission because he was on the board and this other uh, neighbor was on the board. And we made a, you know, we did a pop-up sale. And... Um, I am so amazingly happy to report that every single painting found a home. Excellent. Now, they weren't all sold, but some of the neighbors were new, and they had just redone their apartments, and they needed work on their walls. And that, that work that I did was very decorative. So I was so happy. They would even take me up in the elevator and say, come, come see where it's going to hang. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite wonderful. <laughs> and, I mean, I charged really rock bottom prices the work had to go somewhere you know it couldn't stay and um some of it you know was gifted you know like my best friend eva came by she her family still lives there and um i said eva for you you know uh and so she she got a couple of paintings out of the deal but i know exactly where they are they're hanging above my parents furniture in her mountain home in poland so this is great beautiful yeah so that's, yeah, so that's the story of my Polish painting. So they're all accounted for at this time. So now that, we're we're back in the states and working. Oh, that's uh, what a what a story you've just shared with us here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have to have part two. I think that's a good place to end part one because <laughs> okay. we're we're running out of, of time for this oh. episode. Uh, Danielle Lettinen and uh, her story from <laughs> childhood in in Poland with her. Her wonderful parents uh, and and their friends and and now you really relatively early on in your painting uh, uh, journey and I, I can't wait to hear about how it, it where it's going here in the United States if you'll come back on the show and talk with us again. Oh, I would love to. You know, it's such a pleasure and thank you because it actually organizes a lot of my memories in a way that I would probably never organized them before and i know when i go on and on like this um it seems like i'll never get to the point but i, I kind of have a circular way of hopefully getting back to what the question may have been so i apologize if the answers are really lengthy no. but but so is the life <laughs> exactly no you, the narrative was beautiful it was wonderful thank you so much danielle thank you thank you for having me my pleasure talk with you again soon Wonderful. Thank you. Ciao. Bye. Half of what I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you, Julia 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 Ocean child Sing the song of love, Julia. Julia. Seashell eyes, windy smile, call.
After a nap, painted tumbler on a flight to Lithuania for the weekend, I sat next to Lech Walesa and Allen Ginsberg. A young Henry Kissinger was in the seat behind us. We drank bourbon with a man across the aisle who spoke very lovingly of a Polish poet named Julia Hartwig. I leaned over Alan and stared with a drunken smile at the pure blue sky above the white-gray clouds. Henry held my hand and whispered warm regards of peace in Eastern Europe, love in all the world. I go out walking after twilight Talking to the memories of all I've ever known But you can't find me I'm a million miles from midnight I'm a blues child baby born to be young
And there you have it. Episode 542 of Troubadours and Tours With yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Danielle Lettinen and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Freddie Cole, The Beatles, Hooray for the Riff Raff, Brantford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.